Hello and welcome to Late to It. I'm Kirsty Dool. I'm Naomi Frisbee. And this is the podcast about writing... Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> this is what happens when you go off script. <laughs> right, okay. Can't breathe now. It's for the blooper reel. <laughs> I'm going to save them off Christmas. Really special. <laughs> this is special. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to Late to It. I'm Kirsty Dool. And I'm Naomi Frisbee. And this is the podcast about reading books at the right time. Uh, now, I don't normally introduce. Uh, the reason that I have introduced this time is because this is the bit where we talk about what we've been reading recently. But since we last recorded the podcast, all I've read are the books for this podcast and stuff for work. So I have nothing to say at this point. I'm going to swiftly just hand over to Naomi and say, what have you been reading? I was going to say, because there has never been a point where I have had nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading two very different things, which is quite exciting. I like it when I've gone off piste. Um, the first is W3, which is Bet Howland's Rediscovered memoir so I know um, Blue in Chicago the short stories came out last year and have just come out in paperback um, I haven't read them I don't know why I'm mentioning them but some people might have so they'd be interested in the memoir the memoir um, actually was her debut so it was the book so it's sort of become I suppose a bit of a legendary story now that the book was found in a one dollar bin by the um, editor of a public space and so it was republished in America and now it's coming out here. Um, published by Picador in a gorgeous salmon pink cover. Um, it's about Howland's time in a um, on a psychiatric ward, which is named W3. Um, she is in there because she has attempted suicide. Her two young children, so she's divorced at this point, her two young children are with her parents. Um, she writes, she does write about herself, but it's not a memoir in the sense that it's it's like hugely intros introspective the whole time. She talks about the other people on the ward and there's some really interesting characters. So there's Zelda who has gone when Bet first arrives, but comes back. She's promised she's coming back. So she, <laughs> she, she comes back and she arrives head to toe in designer gear multiple suitcases <laughs> she's got a tv <laughs> she dresses up for dinner like she's a proper you can just imagine a proper sort of new york um character and i think what was really interesting about this was the way that she the way that she creates these people on the page and she is she's sympathetic towards them but there's also some like really horrendous you know i don't need to describe the sort of scenes that you might come across in the psychiatric ward but she treat. I think one like she kind of makes us see it and think about it, which you know I think probably at this time was quite revolutionary. It still feels quite revolutionary mm. now to actually you know sort of stare mental illness in the face, mm -hmm. um, and also she is like sympathetic, but in that way, it's style of writing I really like, where it's kind of quite straight and straightforward, and it seems not simplistic but just really clear, not metaphor, it's not garnished, just like really clean. Yeah, I, 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 
hesitate to say I enjoyed it, but I can't stop thinking about it. And I read it sort of a couple of weeks ago now, and it's really, really stuck. And I underlined loads of it. Um, and I just wanted to read this bit because we talk quite a bit, as I know, like a fair few people um, publishing and publishing adjacent do, about the joy that is Matt Hig. <laughs> and, and he's got this book that I think, has it just come out? That's full of sort of aphorisms. I don't think it's quite out yet. I think it's out as as we are recording the podcast. I don't think it's quite out yet, but it's out soon. And it's already getting on my nerves because I keep seeing these sort of like Instagram light quotes from it. So I just want to read this bit from Bet Howland in response. And it's one of the points where she is sort of she never she does directly refer to her own illness, but she quite often is thinking around it and about what it means. And she says to suffer for nothing, for nothing, that is the real onus of mental illness. There were no numbers, no explanations, nothing was real, nothing was significant. So it might have been, you know, several decades ago, but that's my response. <laughs> I a bet. That, I mean, um, I think what you say there is, is, it made me think of in the last series when we talked about the collective schizophrenia. Yes. You know, that there's this idea that we you know awareness around mental health is is more than it's ever been you know it seems like everyone and their dog is talking about their experience of mental illness but actually it's the palatable end of man mental illness and that is not to take away from what those people have gone through anxiety as i know myself as as you do can be absolutely grim like truly um but you know, we don't have people lining up on television to talk about schizophrenia or some of the, you know, or psychosis or borderline personality disorder or antisocial personality. You know, there are so many mental illnesses that are still just as taboo as they have ever been. Um, and that forcing you to look it in the face by what actually goes on on a psychiatric ward the people in the you know in, in the grips of, of of really desperate illness is I don't think we're any further forward on talking about that sort of stuff than we were before you know whatever awareness week we're in yeah I think you're right which leads me nicely onto the next book which isn't about mental health illness but um so every so often I like to read a bit of poetry and um and I'm like making a conscious effort to mention it on the podcast as well because it's something that I kind of forget to talk about and also um i'm sure this will chime with other people sometimes i think i don't know what i'm talking about and therefore shouldn't talk about it and actually that's nonsense because you don't have to get a poem the first time you read it and all that stuff mm -hmm. so yeah so i do want to talk about it i'm also going to put a, so i'll tell you what it is first but there's also a disclaimer with this so it's the actual by inua ellums which is published by pens in the margin um the disclaimer is that the penultimate poem in here um so they all start, all the poems start with fuck, because it's like the actual fuck. Um, and the penultimate poem is called Fuck Empire. And it wasn't called that at the time, but it was commissioned by Manchester Literature Festival as a response to the Benin Tusk, which is in um, Manchester Museum. I was working for the festival. I was already working for the festival at that point, but I had nothing to do with the commission. I just want to point that out. And <laughs> apart from promoting it on social media, and I didn't know it was in the collection until I picked it up to read it. Anyway, disclaimer done. So yeah, all these poems, and there are 55 of them, all start with fuck something. And it's lots of it's about um, structural things, 
So, um, fuck Tommy Robinson, no thanks, but I get what you're saying. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of political ones, fuck 45, as in Mr. Trump. Um, that's that's a bit more like polite than he, than, uh, he deserves, anyhow. Um, fuck 76, Theresa May. Fuck 77, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Um, fuck Kipling. Uh, what else have we got? Um, this oh, there's some that are to do with um, climate change as well. There are some to do with the way that um, people are um, seen on film. Um, there's one I'm laughing now, even though I think if I remember, I read this a couple of days ago. Fuck Batman is <laughs> to do with. Um, sort of vigilance and vigilancy but um we're recording this a couple of days after the whole scandal about the removing i don't know if you see this on twitter in the last couple of days apparently um they're going to remove a scene where batman goes down on catwoman and it's caused a scandal on there because it's caused a scandal on twitter so fuck batman's just made me laugh um but the one that i, I have read, that i have to say well, there we go. Now you know all about it. You can go search for it, Kirsty. God help you. You might see something you don't want to. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so lots of it's political. And obviously we mentioned this last week, like we're both very keen on, on things about um, political structures and removing them. And this one, it is about, it's about patriarchy, but also it very much appealed to me because I have a problem with this as well. So one of the early ones is called Fuck Week Hugs. And I have to say, as we're coming out of the pandemic, and, you know, we're allowed to, like, see more people again and catch up with people we haven't seen for ages. I also cannot bear weak hugs. And I'm aware that he's writing about this in terms of masculinity and men not hugging each other. But also anybody who gives a weak hug, fuck you. <laughs> I'm like, if we're having a hug, a consensual hug, it needs to be good. Especially I'm so with you. I'm so with you. I'm a hugger. I am absolutely a hugger. Um, and I'll, I want to give you a proper hug. I look forward to it. <laughs> I um I had a, I told my 15 year old off the other week because he started doing that thing you know sometimes where men are like they hug but they like pat each other yeah 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 he did it to me and I was just like no no we're stopping that right now <laughs> and he's like why <laughs> like I love that you still give hugs but that, that's not happening that is not happening so no. yes fuck week hugs that's the actual um it does have fuck written all over the cover but scored out in gold which I love and yeah, in your LM, so that's pending the margins. It's great. There we go. So that's what I've been reading. We're going to have to talk about the books now, aren't we? We are. Right. So the uh, two books that we're talking about this week are uh, Rembrandt's Whore by Sylvie Maton, which is translated from the French by Tamsin Black. That was published by Canon Gates originally uh, back in 2001, um, published in French in 1997. Uh, although I've got a Canon's edition that was a couple of years ago. Uh, and the other one we're talking about is Vivian by Christina Hesselholt. And that's also been translated, this time from Danish, by Paul Russell Garrett. That is from Fitzcarraldo. And it was published in a year that is 2016, although the translation was 2019. So, two translated novels. Yes, and by the time this goes out, we are so well planned, it will be Women in Translation Month. Like, our, our spreadsheet magic, working again. Not really, it's just an accident, but we'll take it. <laughs> so, yes, it's Women in Translation Month, which I love, which I have followed since right at the beginning. 
So I just want to mention that it was founded by Myrtel Radinsky. You can find her on Twitter. Um, I think on Twitter she might be at Biblibio. I can't say this. Biblibio, which is her blog spot. And you can find all about on there um, what Women in Translation Month is, why she raises awareness about it. Lots of people have got involved um, by this point. So you'll see publishers, if you're not aware of it, you'll see publishers talking about it. Um, and coming up with you know ideas for things that you might read I think it's brilliant because like the stats for women in translation are still quite low so it means that you know we're getting I'm um, we're getting more books translated by women more exciting things to read non non-anglophone books which is always great so yeah I just wanted to mention that so people could find out more oh there's a hashtag on twitter uh, either wit month or women in translation month if you want to find post Instagram as well there's a an account a Whitmont account on Instagram too yeah I second that um I've been sort of actively trying to read more in translation over the last couple of years and there's just so much brilliant stuff mm. that doesn't get the same amount of attention as as anglophone writing um so yeah absolutely second the vote to go and search that out on social media every year I come away with a list of stuff that I want to read which is much longer than I get time to read, so I should no doubt add to that this year. You should actually um, add to the spreadsheet. Oh yeah, it's all for the spreadsheet. We're run out of colours. Um, <laughs> right, so the first one we're talking about is Rembrandt's Hall by Sylvie Matton. Now, this was my choice, and I uh, had sort of been aware of this book for a really long time. So in 2001, when it was published, here and I couldn't remember exactly what year it was but it must have been the year it was it was published in the UK um I worked in Waterstones in Glasgow and um that's how I would have seen it so I remember putting it out um and it was one of these books that I've I sort of always quite fancied and just never got around to actually buying and the reason that I was interested in it because this is a historical novel it's set in the 17th century um historical fiction is not my natural go-to i mean i've 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 read some and i've enjoyed some and i've not enjoyed others uh, but it's not my sort of first genre of choice um but the thing that i was interested in is this idea of, of reclaiming women um from history and putting sort of uh women's points of view across um when those women would not necessarily have had the chance to speak for themselves and, and what this novel is about um is now i'm going to preface this with an apology to all dutch speakers everywhere because my pronunciation is is going to be dreadful i'm going to try my best um but i'm i'm just say now i'm very very sorry <laughs> so uh this... i don't know why i'm laughing mine will be as bad <laughs> I tried to look it up and I, I just, my results were inconclusive. Mm. Um, so I am trying my best. Um, so this novel is about a young woman uh, who is about 20 when the novel opens called Hendrikia Stoffels or Stoffels, Stoffels, I'm not sure. Um, she uh, went to be a servant in the household of the artist Rembrandt. Um, very quickly becomes his lover. Uh, they they don't marry because Rembrandt uh, has a load of financial stuff going on with his um, ex-wife who has died. But it's sort of if he got married again, it would negate 
the will, uh, sort of, essentially. Um, but so she becomes known, even though they're together for 20 years as sort of common law husband and wife and they have a child together, she is always known as Rembrandt's whore because they, they're, they're not married and because of other scandals, which we will talk about in the book. Um, so this is, uh, on the face of it, an attempt to reclaim Hendrika from sort of the annals of history and look at a very famous man through the eyes of this unknown woman and get to know her. Now, I have to confess that after having been eyeing this book up for 20 years, uh, I came away from it a little disappointed, which is just the worst feeling when you've been waiting to read something for two decades and then you kind of go uh, uh, and that, now that's not to say that there is nothing to like in this book there is plenty of to, to like in this book um, you know I think some of the writing is gorgeous some of the descriptions are incredible incredibly um, vivid and sumptuous and you know beautifully written but it's not really about her, is it? It's not. And that was the thing that, like you say, there's lots to, to like about it. And there's things I talk about that I know will appeal to people. And there are people who love this, the way mm. that it's written. But I felt like, and I'd never heard of this book until you suggested it. And I was really interested in reading it because I'm always interested in women's stories that have been reclaimed, except what we get is more of Rembrandt just told from the viewpoint of, I'm not even going to attempt it to pronounce her name, but just told from her viewpoint, which I just found immensely frustrating because I'm like, I don't want to read about Rembrandt, actually. I'm not interested. And I found myself comparing it to um, Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, which does a brilliant job of reclaiming Agnes Hathaway and giving her a life and... Um, an agency of her own and I think yeah it, it for me it didn't work but I don't know whether that's to do with what I was expecting from it and the, I mean the blurb on the back suggests that's what might happen but it doesn't and I found the treatment of women like generally in it just so frustrating mm -hmm. so you kind of alluded to it then but there is um there's another servant who's a little bit older who's there when I'm gonna I will attempt I'll attempt Hendrika. Hendrika? Is that what we're going with? Hendrika? That's the, that's the main character servant. Yes. So when she arrives, there's an older servant. Let's have a go. It's called Gertje Dirks. <laughs> See how hesitant I am with this. Anyway, so there's this, there's this older servant. She is already Rembrandt's lover, but you kind of don't find that out to start with. Um, and the, the the way it's all sort of revealed is that she leaves under this massive cloud. She just kind of disappears. And then when she comes back, she's furious. Um, and it's because she says that Rembrandt has promised to marry her and that, you know, he's, he's left her out cold. And he denies all this and says that obviously it couldn't possibly have because it was in the will that he basically, if I remember rightly, he'd have to pay 20,000 florin um, to a house, um, to an orphanage, is that right? To protect his son. Um, mm. and, and so obviously he wouldn't have agreed to it. Now, I don't believe that for one minute, because we don't know, like you don't know what conversation they've had. 
like you can just imagine it can't you that they've just they're laid in beds and that he just comes out with any old whatever and you know and why shouldn't she believe it she lived there like basically as his wife as does Hendrika later so and then <laughs> and then because he, he like denies everything she said he basically has her confined to a mm. mental asylum which mm. her friend rescues her from in the end but it was this kind of like acceptance of it's told in a way even though there's no kind of judgment it's told in a way as if like Rembrandt's telling the truth and you know look at this this mad woman and and the things that she suggested and you're just like oh yeah because the man's never lied and told you that he's gonna <laughs> marry after he's just come no never happened <laughs> <laughs> well he gives her a ring i mean he gives her this really valuable ring and then goes oh well i because she's essentially raised his son as well um i gave it to you as you know recognition of uh you know the fact that you raised my son and you know i want you to leave it to him in the will so it goes back to him and she's you know fair enough just gone like no you promised to marry me like come on now and it feels like that it's you know how dodgy men always say call all my ex-girlfriends are crazy yep <laughs> i mean that's basically what it is and she does as you say you know she gets committed to god knows what conditions mm-hmm. um, and you know Hendrika is just completely unquestioning but i think that's because i think the author is you know so this the, the author is a rembrandt um expert i was about um, to say it's done <laughs> um, yeah basically um she has you know made a feature a feature film about rembrandt so rembrandt's her guy and she is looking for new ways to talk about rembrandt basically but tries to make it a novel and it's so i'm gonna i'm gonna leap to there's an author's note um at the back of the book uh two things about it Uh, firstly to kind of back you up on what you just said about you know the copy on the back of the book would suggest that this is kind of reclaimed woman's narrative but she says it herself you know in this author note she said I was touched by Henry Stoffel's fate because of the unfair judgment that was cast upon her and because of the way she had to suffer for it Rembrandt's portraits of her revealed the nature of her soul and her generosity and to get to know her better I went to meet her and with her tried to remember so she's she is actively saying I wanted to go and meet this this young woman um but then <laughs> Another thing that she says in the author's note is um, about Rembrandt. And it says, I think I may say that in this novel, everything is true. Nothing has been invented. I mean, it's a novel. (laughs) It's not a fiction. Um, Neither the trials, recipes, smells, the cupboards, nor the mirror, nor indeed the works of art and Rembrandt's kindness. Mm. So it's like, (laughs) you know, Rembrandt can do no wrong. Hendrik is going to back him up. And, 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 you know, factually did, you know, she goes and signs mm. um, sort of statements in support of him. Um, but she can't read. But she can't read. So God knows what they actually say, but she makes her mark. Um, and I would argue that it's, it's, you know, it's not just, it's not just her that can't see through 
Rembrandt is the author. In a nod to last week, I'm now wondering if she's got a cardboard cut out in her bedroom. No, we don't know for sure. I mean, I didn't know Rembrandt. I wasn't alive in 1641. <laughs> um, no, and also I question the validity of any documents like from now, never mind from, you know, 16, whenever. Um, I think I found that frustrating as a creative person, this idea that it could be truthful because um, I am gonna I am gonna jump forward a tiny little bit to a quote from Vivian, which is the second book we're talking about. But there's a point in Vivian, I'll talk more about this later, um, where she says the narrator is the real main character, and she's talking about when she takes a photograph that actually that photograph is about her. And when you write, it doesn't matter what you're writing about, you are in there, you can't help it. You know, even if it's and I know people don't like that thing when you go oh, write what you know, you're writing about yourself, it's thinly veiled autobiography whatever that's not what I'm suggesting but what I'm suggesting is you can't fully take yourself out of it there is always going to be your perspective your bias is going to come through unless you work even if you're working incredibly hard to try and erase it I don't think it's possible no you're absolutely right and I think again to leap ahead slightly but only in terms of comparison Vivian is a novel where the narrator is very explicitly cast as a character in the book, or if not a character, then interrupts the narrative to talk about what she's doing um, and almost to converse with the with the characters that she's writing. With this book, with Rembrandt's Hall, I don't get the sense that this is some sort of attempt to very consciously insert the author. I feel like she's just sort of leaked into it. <laughs> um, and, and another way that that's happened, I think, is through the footnotes, which are so tremendously annoying. So you've got, <laughs> novel 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 and then randomly you'll get a footnote down to the bottom uh and i'll just explain what some who some random character was now that's all well and good i'm not up on my art um so i wouldn't have necessarily known who that person was but it but it's intrusive in the novel in that you know you don't <sighs> I don't want to read historical novel, even if it's about real people, and then have a footnote to go, by the way, this dude that you don't know, this is who he was. And, you know, she's talking about one guy, Jan Levens. Jan, Jan Levens lived in Leiden at the same time as Rembrandt, who was a year older than him. And then it goes on to say that another, another character, he met the two painters on his first visit. They were friends and very close in their art. Ferdinand Boll was a pupil in Rembrandt's studio between 1636 and 1642 and Govert Flink from 1633 to 1636. Why? Why are you putting that there? That's, it just feels like, oh, look what I know, and I'm going to just, I'm just going to insert it. You know, the reading of the novel is not improved by knowing who was in whose studio in 1633. Um, it just feels like the author couldn't quite contain herself and everything she knows about Rembrandt. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I found it frustrating as well, because it's, it's like that, um, Thing. you know when it seems we talk about women in translation month as well because more more often what you find in 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 uh books that use different languages that there's no glossary there's no explanation so i know one of your authors elaine castillo um in america is not the heart she writes phrases in tagalog and they're never tagalog is that right tagalog tagalog um and they're not explained and actually you don't need an explanation because you can work some things out from the context and if you can't well you know Hello, welcome to life. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, totally. And, and I, he wrote an amazing essay for LitHub. I can't remember the exact name of the essay, but if you if you Google Elaine Castillo and LitHub, it will come up. But she wrote this incredible essay about why she doesn't, because as she says, you know, there's no one translate middle class Brooklyn for her. Like, so why should she translate Bay Area kind of Filipino diaspora that she grew up in for someone else? Like, that's that's how she speaks that's her language you know there's lots of different languages they all intersperse different slang you know why should she translate for people just I mean if you really don't know what something means just google it yeah and that's kind of how I felt about this so I watched um the hair festival event with um so it was Russell Turvey Mm. and his friend who he does his um art podcast with who I've forgotten what it's called even though I know he used to be in a band and he's fairly famous but I still can't remember his name sorry Russell Turvey's friend um <laughs> they've got this um art podcast they've just released a book as well and so they did a live version of the podcast with Olivia Lang and she was talking about she pushed back quite a lot on earlier books where editors wanted her to footnote or you know an end note so much stuff and she said if people are interested they will google it and it was because Russell Turvey was saying that you know he was so interested in x he'd gone and looked it up and he'd found this and he'd gone to this and it had led him on this whole journey and I was like exactly that's that's exactly what I do when I'm reading if I want to know something or I'll mark the page and come back to it if I want to carry on reading and find out later so yeah I'm totally with you on the frustrations of that Mm. yeah absolutely I mean when I was I mean disclaimer klaxon talking about a book that i did the publicity for <laughs> but america is not the heart is is truly fantastic novel and it's 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 one of those novels that i've worked on that is just just completely blew my mind um which is amazing but one of the things about that book is the is the food in it now i had no clue about filipino food or or, or food of the filipino diaspora at all i had never heard of you know 95 percent of the meals that she talks about um i can say that i googled nearly every single one of them (laughs) and even before i did i was hungry like they're just the descriptions of food even if you don't even know what it is is just a joy um yeah that's my recommendation for you well i also love that book but seeing as you've like tangentially gone on to food can we talk about how much meat there is in this book (laughs) I don't know whether it was just me as a vegetarian who was going, oh my God, we'll talk about meat again. But they were, <laughs> and the descriptions, like this is one of the things that I thought was really well done is the descriptions are so vivid because one of the things that like has really stuck in my head is they go, you can tell that they're still relatively rich because they go and basically buy an entire cow that they then bring back to Rembrandt's house that's going to feed them for however long, but they string it up. And then in one particular scene where he's really pissed off, he starts painting, he starts painting it, but with bits of the cow, then it's kind of splattered all. It's it's like the most perfect um, portrait of toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was really interesting that like the, the meat kept coming up anyway. Kind no, of- I, didn't, I hadn't noticed that I hadn't clocked that at all. Maybe that's because I'm not vegetarian and <laughs> uh, or vegan and do indeed eat meat. Um, yeah, no, I mean, now that you say it, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and I certainly remember that scene with the bits of cow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think, seeing as we're on to like the things, things that were done really well, I really like the posture. So as we've gone into like, she's gone full Rembrandt, um, all the stuff about the sort of class politics and the people who who have the power 
to allow him to continue painting because they are paying for portraits and that's or they're sending you know their offspring to be his apprentices and obviously paying for them to be you know taught and housed by Rembrandt and therefore so there's sort of patron system um and I really like those sort of discussions about who and even like you know Rembrandt they had the power to stop him working and they did at certain points when they, they were pissed off with him because he'd had a child out of wedlock because there's lots about the sort of religious side but one of the bits that I really loved so one of the things that Hendrika um talks about is how she feels when he's when he's painting her and she says in his paintings I'm born again and then um when um they talk about people who are buying the paintings um, she says, you often say it's not just their portraits purchasers want, they're buying eternity. Even though the sun no longer moves around the earth, nothing can threaten that sort of eternity. The eternity of art, as long as a painting lasts with a good animal skin glued to prime the canvas hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And I thought it was really interesting and something that I think we might talk more about when we get onto Vivian and photography and the fact that we're all documenting our lives now so you're not just like Rembrandt might get to have his paintings knocking about for years but like so why so might we for like much less money well not paintings <laughs> but you know selfies on Instagram <laughs> but yeah I thought that whole sort of the way that the 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 way that the power structures depicted I thought was really really good um and showed just how frustrating it was an artist then as it is now <laughs> like I had great sympathy with Rembrandt at that point with you know trying to get money out of people and wondering how he's going to carry on making a living yeah I mean I think for all there are I think negatives of her being extremely close to her subject um or her true subject being Rembrandt um you know there is there is good that comes out of that as well and, and that sort of richness of description and that sort of attention to detail and being able to put in those those you know circumstantial things that sort of make the whole thing come alive is is the good side of it I just I just wish that it hadn't sort of bled into everything quite so much fair enough shall we move on at that point I think that's a fitting place to move on. So yeah, so so yours was disappointing. However, mine was excellent. So <laughs> I'm taking all the prizes this week. <laughs> no, this is un I'm going to point out this is unusual for us though, because normally, we even if one of us has suggested it, both of us are interested. Like we've been interested in reading whatever it is, and I think this is this is one of the few episodes where we've distinctly picked um, one each. So this mm. is Vivian by Christina Hesselholt. It's translated by Paul Russell Garrett, published by Fitzcarraldo, as you said. And the reason that I was interested in this is because I'm really fascinated by Vivian Mayer's story. So if, if you haven't heard of her, she is um, or was a street photographer. Her, she was um, unknown during her lifetime and afterwards her possessions were auctioned off they found hundreds of thousands of photos um well to be fair she was a bit of a hoarder as we found out in the book but they found thousands of photos um, apparently at the time this book was written they still hadn't all been shown to the public there were so many of them there's a documentary about her which if you've got um amazon prime it's on there at the moment i haven't watched it yet deliberately because i didn't want to <laughs> what i was worried about was that if i watched it 
I'd start talking about the documentary instead of the book and then I'd get confused. Um, <laughs> so I can't recommend it, but <laughs> it's up there if you want to have a look. Um, yeah, and I, so I'm fascinated about her story and this idea of a woman who took all these photographs and never published them. And as far as we understand it, that was her choice. But also because I um, also take photographs, not just on Instagram, I do like my um, dad's um, used to do like weddings and portraits and stuff when I was younger. So taught me a little bit. Um, and yeah, I put stuff on Instagram, but I kind of, I do do other stuff that I mostly keep to myself at the minute. So that's why I'm, yeah, interested in that. And I think, oh God, I think the first thing that struck me about this was how unlikable she was. And I partly like wish I'd never met her. <laughs> Sorry, Vivian, but you were awful. <laughs> I mean, there were reasons for that. She had an incredibly traumatic. So it reminded me of the trauma cleaner. because. Yeah, she does hot she hoards newspapers and when she takes a photograph she doesn't look at it again some of them towards the end she doesn't even develop them but when she develops them she just sticks them in a box so i think there's a point where she she moves out of one of the houses and she's got like 20 boxes of stuff and the newspapers are piled up outside and oh god it's so <laughs> grim and it is that um She's tr she's trying somehow to like protect herself from all the awful things that have happened with her family, and so I kind of I felt for her, but she does some really horrible things. Yeah, I mean, she says at one point with the with the hoarding, you know, there's a there's a point. So she's you know she's a photographer, but she's her day to day job is working as a live in nanny essentially. For um, in this novel, it's concentrated on one family. Um, and there's a point sort of later on in the novel where the family discover because the, the condition is that um no one is to go into her room she keeps her room locked um but this one particular day she didn't lock her room and the family discover the state of her room essentially the level of her hoarding the fact that there's newspapers piled high that she has basically a little path between all the stacks of newspaper I think I don't know if I'm conflating it with a different bit of the novel but I think she says at one point where she doesn't sleep in the bed she sleeps because it's I think that's in the I think that's in the later house but I remember like Winston it's, she basically sleeps on top of them and I was just like no oh my god yeah no. yeah but see so the family discover this, this the, the amount of hoarding that she's been doing and she feels really violated and she talks about how you know it's in that room that she feels free and it, there's a there's a real kind of disconnect between the fact that the, you know the room is absolutely stacked with newspaper. Sorry, my cat is here again. <laughs> Just every time. Um, but that's obviously where she 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 feels most at home, most herself, the most. Um, it's who she is behind closed doors, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is really interesting um, because she she is this sort of unlikable, and she does utterly reckless things I don't think you need to be a mother to be horrified at the bit where <laughs> she goes to the young child right we'll teach you how to hitchhike <laughs> <laughs> no don't don't do that that's that's bad idea mm. um you know she and she's she's utterly unpleasant to to quite a lot of people but not to everyone you know she's not mm. she's not all bad at all um yeah I definitely thought of the trauma cleaner as well. I was like, 
Sandra Pankhurst would be all over this. <laughs> she would. She'd be sorting her out. Oh my god! Like there's a bit when the dad of the family done is like, we've been living under a fire. She's in the top of the house. So it's like we've been living under a fire hazard. Yeah. Um, but also the fact that like she's storing. All, I'm fascinated by the fact that she was storing all these photographs. And so, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about is because she she was a street photographer, so she would take pictures of things that she saw. So right at the beginning, she'd like they pick her up or the dad picks her up from the station. And she takes a photo of a dead horse. And I'm just like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> but mostly she takes photographs of people. And when people notice, sometimes they get really annoyed. So they're quite aggressive and frustrated. I mean, which I kind of feel like, well, I'm, I'm a bit torn on this because I'm like, yes, quite rightly. Um, you can draw a direct parallel with like some of the shaming that goes on on social media when people have taken photographs of people who are just like, you know, minding their own business on public transport and they're taking a picture so they can, you know, take the piss out of them or whatever. But also, if nobody, if nobody um, street photographs, then how do we get, I, I was going to say true then and I stopped myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> but how do we get a representation of like normal daily life that's, you know, not hindered by people posing or you know what I mean? So I'm kind of, especially because, you know, the sort of people she's photographing are just kind of average people. So, you know, and I don't think it's it's like, it, not that photography particularly reminds me of, but it made me think of Martin Parr taking photographs of like the North and working class and seaside towns. Like, you know, how do we have that record? I mean, I suppose now to some extent people do it themselves, but again, you back to that. If you're taking pictures, like when you're out on the beach with your friends, then, you know, the pose itself is, and like there's a place for all of that. But I think she's doing something different. So yeah, I am kind of interested in how much of it is violating people's privacy and how much of it is documenting something that would otherwise be lost. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. I mean, I, I know that if someone came up to the came up to me in the street and just took my photo, I would be horrified. Um, and you know, if if I was asked my permission for them to use it, unless you know, I can't imagine the circumstance where I'd go, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of sympathy for those people that were angry about it because I, I just, oh God, no, the thought of someone just coming up and I don't know and just taking a photo of me, I just, well, no, absolutely not. Um, but you're right, how do you get, how do you get the non-posed, I suppose it sounds very boring, but it's permission, isn't it? It's, it's, and you couldn't do that then because she's, you know, taking it on a film camera because it's the 1960s or earlier um it's not like now where if you you've got your slr and you mm -hmm. take a photo you can then turn it around and show someone going this is the photo i've taken do i have your permission to use it um obviously you couldn't really do that at the time so oh no i don't mm, nah, i just I, d I do get the thing about authenticity and the non-posed photograph but at the same time if someone did that to me i'd just be raging <laughs> I also think like 
there's there's more to this as well so moving away from sort of the person and, and honestly while you were talking then I'm thinking I hate it when people do it at events when I'm chairing the event and I know it's going to happen and I still there's a photo of me that does the rounds on Twitter from an event that I was part of that I loathe and every time I see it I'm like I wish it would die I have never once retweeted or liked it and I'm just like somebody burn it <laughs> anyway um there's a bit where um she's talking about her photography and she says then there is the question of style and choice of subjects do the pictures point back to a certain person to me i ponder that every time i have been to an exhibition how much of the person behind the camera can be seen in the works is one hidden behind them or on the contrary do they unveil you i think they do the narrator is the real main character and I totally agree with that. When people talk about, so when you're doing kind of like basic writing workshops, one of the things that comes up with like, um, like really, really starting writers is that idea that somebody might nick your idea and then go off and get a six figure deal and, you know, screw you over. And one of the things that you're always told and it becomes, the more you write, the clearer this becomes is that only you can write what you're writing. Even if you've got the kind of, you know, a similar idea. So like one of the things that it's immediately made me think of is Erin Kelly's just published a book that um, called Watch Her Fall, which is about a thriller about a ballet dancer. And Megan Abbott has got a book coming out soon. And I can't remember the title of it, even though I can picture it. It's got, it's got a gorgeous cover, uh, which I can picture. But Megan Abbott's also got a book coming out that's set in the ballet world. And obviously she writes thrillers. And like, you know, can you think of anything worse than such like a massive cry writer <laughs> doing the same thing? But the two books will be completely different because you can only come from your perspective and the things that, you know, have, have created who you are since you were born. And, you know, so, yeah. So I'm rambling <laughs> now. You're right. I mean, even if you were literally describing the same event, if by some total fluke, two novelists came up with precisely the same plot, you know, two people will look at it differently. The responses will be different. Yeah. And that's what I think is really interesting about photography. And it's why I stopped myself from saying truth earlier, because there's no such thing. It's all subjective. But what you choose to shoot, the way you choose to frame it, the time of day you do it, whether you decide to take something. So like, I'm thinking about if I, I'm going to be a bit self-indulgent. Oh my God, it's becoming a thing on the podcast. I'll stop it, I promise. But um, like, I'm thinking about the fact that if she was going to shoot a scene, she'd probably have people on it. While Whereas I will wait as long as it takes for people to move if I want to shoot something and show, you know, without people in the way damn them get out of it <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not that interested in shooting people so I don't think I'm very good at it so you know all of that stuff all of that baggage comes with it baggage or you know um what's the it's one of those things that I say baggage some people would say it's genius that you've got you know that sort of auteurs not that I'm comparing myself to an auteur but you know like some people it becomes their thing, doesn't it? So I'm thinking, as soon as I mention Otter, I'm thinking of um, people like Tim Burton then get a reputation. I mean, I know he's not a photographer, but like film and photography, film and photography are very closely connected. And obviously he's got that reputation. And you know, when you're watching one of his films or yeah. you see a trailer for it, you know exactly what it looks like and what to expect. So, you know, some people build their reputations on that. So yeah, I, I feel like I'm like just, off on one but I find all of this stuff really interesting it is, it is really interesting um 
And actually, one of the things I really liked about this book was the fact that the the author very obviously inserts herself. Though mm. so it's a novel, the structure of it, it's set is very, um, com- so <laughs> a very different book, but Daisy Jones and the Six. Mm, yes. All the different people sort of saying how they saw certain situations and the narrative gets carried through this sort of polyphonic, multiple voices, um, and that's and that's what this is, except not a rock band in the seventies. Um, so you've got the perspective of Vivian, you've got the perspective of um, the husband and wife of the family that she is nannying for. You've got the perspective of the child um, who is sort of eleven or twelve when she's first with them, and then sort of gradually gets older. Um, you also occasionally get. Vivian's mother you get um the photographer that Vivian and her mother lived with for a period of time uh during one of the periods in which um her parents had separated which seemed to be many um but crucially you also get the narrator um and particularly in the latter part of the book she is in direct conversation with Vivian um and I mean, it's set up as if, you know, the author has no control over what Vivian is saying, which of course is not true because she's the author. Um, But it has a really interesting effect. I mean, I'm just looking for the bit now um, where she's imagining, um, you know, a conversation between them. Um, And Vivian says, says, Viv, why aren't you mentioning the composition of my pictures? Narrator. Mm the content is imposing its will. Um, and that obviously can be taken in a number of different different directions. Um, so it is this sort of slightly, and, and then the structure more broadly, as well as these kind of multiple voices, it jumps around in time a lot, you know, from Vivian's childhood to, you know, the later years of her life to different times when she's nannying to back to her sort of youth years where she's you know in France um then back to the latter part of her life again so it's constantly jumping around and then on top of that interspersed with everything you've got the narrator talking and she's saying things like well as I write this in 2016 and you know well if you look up on Amazon you'll see that x or you know you can look with the e and find this camera on eBay so you've then got the, the the present day practically also sort of throwing itself in and you're kind of constantly in the kind of oh I don't know what year am I in why are we talking about eBay um but I kind of love that actually it's really interesting I love that too and also I was thinking of Daisy Jones as I was reading it and also I might be cheeky enough to say that Taylor Jenkins Reid was inspired by Elizabeth Goodman's oral history meet me in the bathroom which is about the New York music scene from 2001 to 2011 where she sort of curates the voices of all the people that are in that scene at the time. And she kind of, she takes herself out of it. So it reads really smoothly. But I thought it was really interesting in this that Hessel Holt puts that narrator in because she's showing very clearly that it's constructed, that Vivian, the Vivian of the book is not real. So in a complete contrast to what, so Sylvie Matton's doing where she's saying this is all true and look at all this research I've done um, has, 
uh, Hessel Holt saying, yeah, I've done all this research and look how I've played with it and look at, you know, what I'm doing. Yeah, so uh, she she says quite openly towards the end of the book, at the time she had already, and she's talking about Vivian here, the narrator is talking about Vivian, she'd already spent three years as a nanny in Chicago with a family of three boys. And before that, she had worked as a housemaid in Southampton on Long Island and various places in New York City. Witness accounts from the many families she worked for are very similar. So I decided to tell, uh, to only tell of, and that is to invent, her stay with one of them, namely the Rices, a name made up by me in Wilmette, Ch uh, Chicago. Otherwise, there would presumably be a lot of repetition and nobody enjoys that. I could have chosen the family with the three boys from Highland Park, Chicago, where she stayed for the longest time and who kept a bit of an eye on her for the rest of her life and helped her when she got old, found her own apartment, sat at her deathbed and scattered the rashes at one of her favourite places in a wood somewhere with wild strawberries. But to tell the truth, it seemed overwhelming to me to have to manage three children. So that's why I chose a family with just one. Being an only child myself, I stuck to a structure that I know. And there are already enough characters to make several soups here. So actually, you know, you've got these characters that in, in the real Vivian's life were a huge part of her life. And actually, after this point, occasionally she does make reference to, you know, her boys who mm. help her. Um, but I, 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 I sort of enjoyed the narrator going in, going, yeah, that would have been too difficult. So I stuck with what <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah. I um, wanted to mention one other thing, which is which is entirely invented. So it's part of this conversation that that we've been talking about between Viv and the narrator. But one of the things, and I'm sure people thought this as I um, was talking about who Vivian Mayer was and and you know how she was discovered. The narrator says people have compared you to Emily Dickinson. <laughs> Viv says Emily rarely left her garden. I've travelled around the world. She had a home. I was continually uprooted. I'm tall. She was short. I went to Amherst and saw her bed and white dress. Her poems breathe under the surface. My photographs are straightforward. Narrator. The comparison refers to the size of the surviving body of work in the posthumous publication. She left behind nearly 1,800 poems that were only published after her death, and then the fact that neither of you formed a couple with anyone. Viv, that's why we got so much done. <laughs> I just think, take that, Rembrandt's women. <laughs> <laughs> Should have left uh, and painted yourself. <laughs> have got a lot more done um that's probably a very good point to leave it actually isn't it i think so I'm, yeah I, i've got nothing to say after that <laughs> <laughs> what, what could we say um so what we will say is uh next time we are talking about two more novels we are talking about paul takes the form of a mortal girl by andrea lawler and we're talking about pages for her by sylvia brownrigg um, between now and next week, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Kirsty and I are also on Twitter. I'm at Naomi Frisbee and Kirsty is at the other Kirsty. So you can follow us there for more book chat. Um, otherwise, thank you for listening. Thank you. <laughs>